So we are continuing our series on um, the home of God, that this is the home of God and that we are his family and that he's our father and that um, we were created to co-create with him and be part of this family and this world is his world. Um, Last week we talked about divine hospitality and this week we're going to talk about divine generosity. And I know what you're thinking. The minute you hear the word generosity, you start thinking, oh, great, here goes the pastor. She's going to ask for money or at least talk, talk about money. And so I want us to think about generosity in a little deeper roots than money. I'm actually going to say money is the easy part. I know that's weird to say, but it is. Divine generosity is a spiritual concept. Money cannot repair a relationship. Money cannot make someone love you. Money cannot desire or satisfy the desires of your soul. And um, divine generosity cannot be about money because of those reasons. It's about our whole lives. And it has deep, deep roots. And God understood this when he was creating the world and creating this home for us, that we would need some guidance regarding this idea of generosity and giving. See, now Marta talks and it's all miserable. We need the band back up here to sing her to sleep. So um, the, the ability to trust and maintain our relationship with God is deeply rooted in how we view our resources. But our resources aren't just money. Um, When we're lacking in any resource, think about it, when we're lacking in a resource, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, we always think, what's the deal, God? Where are you? Why? Why are you doing this? And then really at the core of the question we asked, is God really a giver? And can he really provide for us? whether it's about money or something else. Maybe it's a relationship. And then even deeper than that, does God really care about me? Me. Those are the questions that generosity actually leads to, and I don't know if you ever connected it with it, with that, but we're going to go to Scripture. We're going to actually go back to the First Testament because I said we're spending some time in Old Testament, and we're going to think about the concept of jubilee and um, generosity. And this is in Leviticus I'm going to talk about, I'm going to read the scripture first, and you guys might want to pull it up. It's Leviticus 25. I know some of you guys have your Bibles on your um, phones. Or you can just scroll your social media if you want. This is a little bit longer. The concept is here, but the verses are a little longer, so follow along. Leviticus 25, 8 through 17. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So the time of the seven weeks, which we'll get to in a minute, the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, 
nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Okay, so what are they talking about? They're talking about giving up their fields and going back to the field that they once owned and not working. This is going to be sabbatical of all sabbaticals, friends. Vacation of all, of all vacations. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. We're talking about selling back all that they owned and making it even again and not wronging one another in the exchange. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do all my statutes, keep my rules, and perform them, and then you will what? Dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. So again, the thought of God and us, the people of God dwelling in the place of God securely. We talked about that in this first week, about having a secure relationship. Now, this was a this jubilee concept is a little difficult for us in our day and age to wrap our heads around. I think we first need to understand, by the way, the rest of this chapter goes through even more specific rules about what the people were to do, but I spared you guys of that one. You can read it later. Um, we need to understand the economic structure of the time and the culture of when God gave these instructions to people. The common thing here is that when it came to resources and land and whatever the land yielded was tied to everything that your family had. It was everything that your kin had. Buying and selling the land would have been a way, at some point, of dispersing the family. Because if you bought or sold land, you probably had to move. And if part of you moved, then you were moving further away than the central core family. Different way to think of it than just economic. In, in a lot of ways, it's when our children leave. Um, the land was their primary and only resource of how to survive and live. It was economical for them, but it was also sociological. It was familial. It was emotional. And now it's spiritual once God mentions it because God says, don't do this, or at least sell it back. Reset. Go back to the land that you once owned. But all their eggs at this time were probably in one basket, so to speak. And when they started dispersing, God wanted it all to kind of gather it back up again. That's the idea of Jubilee. Okay? It's important to note the seven times seven because the early people of God, the Israelites, would recognize that number not because it's a super magic number, but because it refers to the seventh day and of when God created the world, which was what did God do on the seventh day? He rested, right? He relaxed. He think he released. He let it go. 
he worked for six days and then let it go. So Jubilee is based on that same kind of pattern, right? They didn't have the written word like we had. They had oral tradition, and they would have these patterns that they retold to folks. So Jubilee was instructions given to God by his people, and his intention, remember his original intention was to dwell with us and to commune with us and to co-create the home with us. But what do we do? We tend to disperse, wander, stray, and we often do that through buying and selling. They did that in the early times to um, buy and sell their land, also to make more money and to get ahead. This is the gist. Okay, so this is what it would be like now. I'm 53, almost 54. In my 50th year or sometime in my lifetime, this probably would happen once. Let's think about how it would happen. Everybody would have to reset their economic structure and go back to the land that their forefathers owned. What would that be like for you? Well, my children would, I'm not sure where they would go. Would they go to Ireland? Would they go to Japan? Because we have ancestors in both countries, right? This is nearly impossible for us. This is not a possibility for us to do today. And it was probably impossible for them. In fact, there's really no evidence that they practiced Jubilee. But all the scholars that I read said that there was no evidence that they practiced the Day of Atonement either. And we know that atonement is a huge concept for us to learn about when it comes to Jesus. So, Jubilee is not practical. I, it's not really possible today. I'm not sure it was possible then, but it was, certainly wasn't practical. And so God was giving them instructions to do something that was really, really impractical. So why? Why does God give us instructions that we can't do, right? <clears throat> I think he thought it was a good idea, probably, to spend some time thinking about the concept of releasing or forgiving debt. Here's what Christopher Wright says. Uh, I should be on the screen. Theologically, the Jubilee was based upon several central affirmations of Israel's faith. And the importance of these should not be overlooked when assessing its relevance to Christian ethics and mission. The experience of forgiveness and the fact that Jubilee was proclaimed on the Day of Atonement, to know yourself forgiven by God was to issue immediately in practical remission of the debt and bondage of others. Some of the parables of Jesus spring to mind and the inbuilt hope of the literal jubilee, blended with the eschatological hope of God's final restoration of humanity and nature to its original purpose. That we would dwell with God originally, that was his original intent, that he would make a way for us even when we wander and stray, and that the final intent, that we would be in somewhat like a garden of Eden with God. This is really, really good news. And this is, gets even better. God is restoring all things to himself right here, right now. And we get to participate. We get to participate in this kind of typology that God gives us, this forgiveness of debt. We can help usher in this final vision of what God would have for us all together in kind of a reset and a restoration. 
The ideal of release of debt is the exact typology of Jesus on the cross. Told right in Leviticus, divine generosity has its roots in jubilee, is accumulated on the cross, and we extend it to the world today. So I'm not a sociologist. I don't know how this can happen. I'm really not an, I'm not an economist. <laughs> And I'm not a politician, but I am a follower of Jesus. And because I follow him, this incredible act that my debts have been forgiven and I have been released, not just now, but certainly now, but for eternity, I can say I have enough. I have enough. I'm able to recognize God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and that whatever happens to me, whatever lack that I have, whatever happens with my job or, my, or your job, whatever happens with my house or my body, maybe I'll be sick, or with my relationships, whatever I want, whatever I desire, although not bad, all these concerns are his. I can let it go. Jubilee. Jubilee is about the release of this worry and debt that we have and we carry with us. It's the release of expectations and disappointments and anger and anxiety and all the things that keep us from co-creating with God and dwelling in that seventh day kind of relaxed chief's game hanging out type of thing. That's what God's vision is. Maybe not the Chiefs game, but in our house it looks like that. He sets the tone for us like a good father. He models it for us. He shows us how to let it go. Divine gener generosity is a lot like divine hospitality. It's reciprocal and it multiplies. As we see how much God has provided for us, like a dad, not just with physical resources, but emotional and spiritual ones, that our response should be to show this kind of generosity not only to our brothers and sisters in Christ, although certainly that's expected and not always done, but also to those who have never, ever experienced this kind of divine generosity. So Jubilee is a practice. It's something that he told us to practice, not something like that's an ideal, but something that's a start. It's not the end. It's a, it's a thing that we can do to transform our hearts. I have never known someone at the end of their life, which I got to go to a funeral this weekend. It's always a privilege to do that with followers of Christ, but I've never known people to describe someone as super generous at the end of their life when they didn't practice it in small things first. No one just becomes super generous. They just don't like, oh, I'm going to win the lottery and then I'll be generous. It doesn't work that way. It works with the small steps of generosity every day, every week. So think about this. When your kid, if you have a kid or maybe you're a teacher or you see kids, um, reaches over and smacks their sibling or their friend, what do we say? We say, Say you're sorry, right? 
Now, does that kid actually mean it when they say sorry? They do not, right? But we still say it as parents, like somehow it's magically going to happen. No, we don't say that because it's magically going to happen. We say it because it's an extension of a practice of what God has taught us. So we teach them how to say it first. And then the other person, the sibling that got smacked, experiences that kind of grace and then is able to give it back. It regenerates it reverses the harm and the done, the harm that was done. It's the first step in restoration, the first step in reset. I, I think sometimes we want to see the world become reset and restored when we see all the problems happening and that we forget that it really first starts with us in a very small way. So I know some of you are sitting here right now and you are in some pain because I've heard your stories. And I know you've been victims of some wrong and some wounding. And um, I know you're probably thinking, nope, not going to let it go. I can't let it go. It was too much. It was too harmful. It was too traumatic. And, and if that's you, I would say, Someday. Hang on. Someday, God will make all the wrongs right again. But maybe not today. And some of you are saying, no big deal. I'll just do it. Tell me what to do, I'll do it. And I say, do it. <laughs> Give it up. Let it go. Maybe it's something very, very small for you, but it's really, really big. Maybe it's a harm. Maybe it's money. Maybe it is about money. In a little while, you're going to hear some opportunities for you to give. Maybe you just need to get on your app and give. Um, I know the Hope Center, who we partner with, is having a Hope Heals benefit. And I know that giving just a little bit of money to the Hope Center or to any of our initiatives sometimes just seems like throwing money in the wind. Like, what are we doing there? It's not going to heal the polarization that we have or the... Um, racial divide that we have. But what I will say is that it's a start. It's sort of like when you tell your kid to say they're sorry. Do something. Doesn't magically fix a problem. My family, we like to Venmo each other. Little bits of cash all the time. And it makes no sense at all. Because we're just trading money. But every once in a while, I'll say, go get a coffee. Or my kids will say, sorry, I had a bad day. And they give me $10. And it just makes it better. It's weird like that, yeah? And maybe it's someone that you need to release. Or an idea. Or a forgiveness. I don't know what it is for you guys. 
I know what it is for me, and I know that I've been shown immense generosity. And I look at some of you guys, and I'm like, oh, man, they've done a lot for me. And I think, I could never pay that back. But maybe I could pay it forward. So I'm going to give you a minute here. We're going to go into the Lord's Supper in a minute, but I'm going to give us a minute to think about this, to think about the ways that you've been shown divine generosity and then maybe the thing that you need to let go and either forgive a debt for someone else or perhaps show some divine generosity to pay it forward. Don't Venmo me. <laughs> I, could, I could make a killing now. No, don't do that. Um, I'm teasing. You maybe Venmo your kids or someone else. Okay? So we're going to have a minute of, of silence. I know this is really, it's, it's hard to do silence for a minute when you're not used to it. But as Dan always says to me, like, focus on your breathing. If your mind starts going crazy and you can't pray, then just focus on your breathing. And then Dan will bring us into the Lord's Supper in a minute. Okay? Thanks. <laughs> 